Okay, so I, I'd like to start just by with my uh, previous comment uh, about your compassionate wisdom. And I guess the, the reason why I said that, and I wanted to explicate a little bit more, what you just shared is, in my, in my view or, or my understanding, this a, a perfect exemplification of that compassionate wisdom. It's very, you are thinking about somebody else, and you're trying to be wise about that, and you're extending compassion to them, even in, in heated disagreements. And um, here, here's my comment that I'd love for you to comment on. It sounds to me like part of what you're doing is not actually attempting to change other people's minds as the primary motive, but you're actually attempting all of us to change our own hearts first. So in, and I'm wondering if that kind of terminology, that way of putting it might actually be helpful because having conversations and strategic dialogue, uh, whether it be political or religious or stuff, I think we start with the premise of how do we change somebody's mind, Yeah. right? Sure. And I, what I hear you doing in this conversation is actually starting with the place, well, first, our hearts first have to change. That's what I hear you doing and encouraging all of us to do. And it's a complete flip of the focus of the energy. Yeah. Does that make sense? <clears throat> it does make sense. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're right. And uh, I guess my, my belief is that we need, we need empathy. As Christians, that we ought to be showing empathy. Um, that we ought to love our enemies. That we ought to love those who don't treat us with love or with grace. Yeah, and, but the, the challenge that I run into very often, and this probably is reflected in the language that I use, which, as I said, this is the first time I've done this particular presentation. There are pieces of this that I've talked about another, uh, at other times, but this particular way of, whoops, this particular way of putting everything, this is the first time I've done it. Um, and so I may shift in the future kind of the the tone. But one of the challenges I've run into is that when I say to people, I really believe that we need to be empathetic, I really believe that we need to listen and and care about those who may seem to be our enemies and so forth. A lot of folks who are themselves hurting and who are themselves really um, anxious about particular issues that affect them or affect their loved ones or affect the country may see that empathy as weakness. Right. And I think one of the things that we see in Jesus is that often the things we think are strength are not strength and the things we think are weakness are not weakness. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus encouraged his disciples to uh, turn the other cheek, to um, give even more than asked and, and so forth. And when Jesus himself um, was arrested, beaten, mocked, ultimately crucified, he didn't respond in the ways that we expect a strong person to respond. You know, we're, we live in a culture of, uh, you know, films where the, the good guy would never allow that kind of thing to happen. They would pull out their machine gun or something and blow everybody away. And, you know, and that's how they win the day. And that's not the example that we see with Jesus. Um, and so I, I think I struggle at times um, to explain well, that <laughs> I don't believe that empathy is weak. Um, I believe it is the right thing to do as a Christian, but I also believe it is, even from a pragmatic standpoint, even for folks who aren't Christians, I think it's, it's the most effective way to convince people to, to be willing to see your side of things. Yeah. So that's sort of part of what I was, you know, trying to get across. But I think you're right, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to push you then. How, how in the world did you develop this? At what I feel like there's some practical steps, um, maybe uh, that's a little too simplified. 
Um, but I asked you earlier, I was like, so how do you manage this emotionally? You, you said that you feel like this has just become, um, in some ways, um, you're uh, a, a second, like a natural impulse in order to think yeah. about some of the other persons. But I'm thinking of myself and others. How do you start cultivating that very empathy? And especially as somebody who has wrestled with being, you know, a sexual minority, if we're a racial minority, if we're a minority of any kind where, where you have these systems of injustice that exist, you're, you're asking a lot, yeah. I guess I feel. So where, what's the first step of cultivating that empathy for the other person who may even be the oppressor person or yeah. having the oppressor uh, ideology or, or ideas, right? Yeah. So where do you start with that? How do you cultivate that? Well, I mean, I think in some ways I'm fortunate in that um, there are there's there are certainly similarities and and there's overlap in the experiences of different uh, minority groups, but there are many ways in which the experience of being, um, for instance, a, a, a white gay person is different from the experience of being a straight person of color. Um, my, I know what it's like to be on the other side because I didn't know that I was gay for a long time. So when I was growing up, I said and believed a lot of anti-gay things because I didn't even know that I was gay. Um, so, uh, which is it's kind of a weird, unique experience, but I can think back to where I was and what I believed when I was growing up. And when I was hearing a lot of negative stuff when I was coming out and trying to be heard and understood in my church, I recognized a, a, a lot of the things people were saying to me, I recognized as things that once upon a time I would have said. And so then I thought, well, okay, what would, have, what would have convinced me then? Because that's what I need to say to this person now. Like what, other than going through the experience I've been through, which that person can't experience, what could someone have said to me that would have maybe gotten me to take a second look at this? And then that's how I need to approach them. So from the beginning, I was thinking I need to learn how to put myself in people's shoes. Empathy is something that's always been interesting to me though, because I, uh, you know, growing up as a, as a, a bald four-year-old, um, you know, you learn really early that people get judged based on things that, that they have no control over. And, um, and so I think when I was growing up, I always naturally drifted towards the outcasts. Um, because I, it, that resonated with me, that experience of being an outcast. And so, like, my friends when I was young were all <laughs> the, like, misfits of the school. And, like, I would bring friends over, and my younger sister, um, like, it's so interesting to me. I hear people talk about uh, growing up with older siblings and, like, getting picked on by their older siblings or whatever. I'm the oldest of four. My younger sister picked on, like, me and my friends. <laughs> Um, and she's, and she's wonderful and I don't mean it, but, but like, she was like, okay, your friend so-and-so is really a loser, you know, right? And then, um, but that was, I don't know. So I think I've just always been interested in trying to understand how people work, how people tick. And so when I realized that putting myself in other people's shoes was also like an effective way to to understand what would convince them to think about things differently. And like I always say, and I didn't say this uh, today, but, but like in my book, I, I point out that like there's no magic formula to force someone to change their mind on an issue, right? So you can't like cast a spell or something and, you know, follow the, these steps and then they'll have to change their mind. But... Um, what you can do is if you've got a really good argument for something and someone's not willing to hear the argument, 
you can take steps to try to make it easier for them to hear you. And as long as they're on the defensive, they're not going to be interested in hearing you. And so part of it is you've got to give people a chance to not be on the defensive. It's the same thing if you work in like customer service. Um, a friend of mine works for Disney. Um, since I live down in Orlando, I have a lot of friends who work for Disney, but one of my friends says one of the things that Disney taught him in their training was if you encounter an angry guest in the park, don't ever tell that person to calm down because that's the last thing that an angry person wants to hear, right? So instead, what you do is you listen. You say, you know, oh, what happened? Oh, you know, you're clearly upset. Let me help. Like, what happened? And you empathize. Gosh, that must have been awful. I can understand why that would be really frustrating. You waited all this time, and then this thing happened, and then that... I understand, and that's what helps people calm down, is to feel that they're being heard. Mm -hmm. And so I think, ultimately, a lot of the techniques that you know, I've tried to kind of crystallize are, uh, in one way or another, about allowing people to feel heard and, and then making it easy for people to, to hear another way of looking at things. Do you realize what an emotionally Herculean effort you're asking us to do? Yes. <laughs> Listen, I, mean, I spent the, the yeah. yeah in the moment. You know, you say, "Oh, let me empathize." But I mean, we're talking about conversations you're having around the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, you know, it's a, it, in those moments, it's like, "Oh, let me let me put on my uh, Disney cast hat and let me empathize." And you know, I I spent the last twenty years of my life um, being in rooms full of people who think that I am uh, leading people straight to hell and who aren't afraid to say so. Um, and there are, there are times in, I don't care how strong you are. There are times when a conversation just gets to be too much mm -hmm. and you just have to say, you know what, this is not a, I'm not in a good place to continue this conversation right now. And there are times there are individuals who you have to, um, you may decide I'm not, it's not going to do any good for me to continue to engage with this person at all going forward on this subject. Um, but but you have to choose carefully where that line is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's tough. I have some crazy stories. So so kind of on the note, um, how do you handle situations where for some person, on one side of the conversation it's like very academic, yeah, right? but then on the other side it's extremely personal, you know. And um, how do you kind of approach it in that situation when the other person doesn't even realize that oh this is somebody's life we're talking about and to them it's like oh well you know theologically you know yeah to them it's not a real thing it's just like a theoretical problem yeah um, and I feel like yeah anyway so I'm curious what your thoughts are and like how, the, how to bridge that kind of disconnect sometimes yeah that's like the most frustrating thing isn't it when you're like trying to I've had this happen so many times um, talking about about gay stuff. Um, where I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody about, you know, quote, the Bible and homosexuality. And um, for me, it's, this is not an issue. This is not like a theological question that like, you know, yes, this would be an interesting topic for scholars to discuss the meaning of Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And, you know, um, for me, this is like, this is my life. Like, when the church is wrestling with the question of do we support same-sex marriage, for me, this is not a, a primarily a, a question about the theology of how we understand marriage in the Bible and all this stuff. I mean, that's certainly important, but like for me, this is like, do I have to be alone for the rest of my life or no? And that's not just about, you know, like sex. It's about It's about my ability to have companionship and, and love and, you know, all of these things in my life. And so, yeah, it's really frustrating. I, I find this is one of the reasons that I think storytelling is so important. Um, as human beings, even, even when we're not great at empathy, um, most of us have some ability to empathize, even if we don't uh, make great use of it all the time. Um, when, we're, when we're watching a film featuring a protagonist uh, of any sort, uh, we are on some level empathizing with this protagonist most of the time. We're, we're, we want the protagonist to succeed. We're like in their shoes. Um, 
So when you can share stories about you or about people that this is really about their lives, um, it often can help people to think about things a little differently and take it a little bit out of just the uh, just the kind of the heady stuff. But it 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 takes time, you know, and part of the challenge then is people can also accuse you, if it's like a biblical question, people can accuse you of, uh, you know, caring more about emotion than, uh, than scripture. And, uh, you know, which people have said that about me because like my book Torn, a lot of it is about my story and I talk a lot about scripture, but like people have said, well, you, you wrote all this stuff about your story and, and only saved a couple of chapters to deal with all the Bible passages. And I'm like, yeah, and you know what? The Bible is full of stories, and Jesus taught in stories. And um, when Jesus on the Sabbath was uh, you know, faced with the Pharisees who had a very legalistic approach to what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath, Jesus, rather than arguing the Scripture with them, just says, well, what if your child falls into a well? Are you going to pull him out or not? And, uh, you know, so Jesus seems to me is very interested in people's humanity. And so I try to always go back to that, the stories, as much as possible. Hi there, Justin. Thanks for coming. Um, when you're talking about stories, um, I always find it challenging to tell a story without making it, like, super long. Hmm. Uh, how do you prioritize what to say in a story? Or, like, how to, like, give them just enough to... What, what part do you tell them to make them ask for more? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends a lot on the situation and the person. Um, so, you know, if if you're talking to, say, a family member or a best friend, they may want to hear all the details. They may want to hear the whole story, you know? Um, if you're talking to someone who you're not as close to, they may not want to hear all the details of, of your life story or the whole story that you're, you're telling them about somebody else or whatever. Um, one technique, I think, I think a lot of it depends on what you're comfortable with, you know, in, in terms of how you share stories in your own life when you tell somebody about something that happened in your day or whatever. But one technique that I've heard um, used to some effect is um, to start with a particular pivotal moment. Um, so, for instance, if you're talking about an issue where something happened to change your mind or to make you care about it, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't really care about this issue until this thing happened. Um, you know, what, when this happened, when, when my child came out to me, when there was a shooting at the school down the road from, from me, when, uh, you know, when September 11th happened, like, you know, the moment where like something happens that like changes your perspective. Um, if you can, stop and think for a bit about what is that moment or one of those moments that really changed the way you see this and what was going through your head at that time. Maybe it was even just like you saw a documentary on a subject and like the documentary just really impacted you. And you can even share the story of like, you know, I, I used to not care so much about this until I saw this film and I was listening to this woman share her story and it just hit me that I had never heard anybody say da-da-da-da-da-da before because I'd always thought da-da-da-da. And here's this woman saying da-da-da-da. You know, and so it's her story, but now it's your story because you're impacted by her story. Um, and so you can sort of focus on a moment and then kind of back up a little bit, just give them enough context for like for the moment and then talk about what about that moment impacted you and why that changed your your view um somebody texted in how can the church best support and meet the needs of their same-sex attracted brothers and sisters desiring to live a celibate life but still with the god-given need for intimacy and relationship boy that's the question of the <laughs> the decade um so, you know, those of you who've read my book know that my position has shifted from growing up, I believed that, um, well, growing up, I believed that being gay was a choice. And then when I realized it wasn't a choice, I thought perhaps gay people had to be celibate. Uh, and then ultimately through Bible study, I came to the conclusion that I, I don't believe gay people have to be celibate. I actually, I believe the church ought to support same-sex marriage. But I also recognize that many of my very devout brothers and sisters don't agree with me on that. And I have friends who are, um, you know, as this person said, both gay and Christian and 
hold that more conservative view that um, that that they they don't think that God would bless a, a same-sex union, a same-sex marriage. Um, and I think I don't yet have a really good sense of what it would look like for the church to fully support them. But what I can say is I think that we as the church need to be having conversation um, about for anybody who is single, um, how how do we be a family to somebody? Because it is really easy, I have to say, as a single person of a certain age, uh, it's easy to feel lost beyond a certain point where like everybody kind of expects you to be married off. It, it's easy to feel like, like you don't have a place and... And it can be lonely, and you can be lonely sitting even in the middle of a church when you look around you and you see all the happy families and you're just by yourself. And so I think we, as the church, need to be intentional about looking out for folks and reaching out to them and checking in with them and finding out what works within their comfort zone. Not everybody wants to be invited over to, to dinner with your family all the time, but some people may. Um, and I, and and I think it needs to be an ongoing conversation that we're like really continually thinking about. Yeah. Um, this is maybe a good transition, but uh, how do you respond when your uh, spiritual authority is challenged because of your sexuality, either implicitly or explicitly? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it it depends a lot on the situation. It's it's hard. Um, this is my answer to so many of these things. Like, yeah, it's really tough when that happens. That's no fun. So, gosh, I don't know if this answers the question or not, but it brings a story to mind. So I'm going to run with it and see what happens. Uh, so I was uh, speaking at a Christian college a few years ago. And... Um, I sometimes do presentations with my friend Ron Belgal. Ron is gay and Catholic, and he is one of those gay Christians who believes that gay people are called to celibacy. Ron and I have been friends since college, and so we sometimes do presentations together where we talk about the fact that we're both gay, we're both Christians, we respect each other's faith, and we disagree on how to interpret the Bible on this subject. And, and we, we try to demonstrate for folks what it looks like to lovingly disagree. So Ron and I had been asked to do a presentation like that on this Christian campus, and we were all prepared. And then, like, right before the, the, the presentation, like, like, within 24 hours of the presentation, we got the news that someone who was coming from um, uh, what they used to call an ex-gay position, the position that basically... Uh, you have to become straight. And this guy was kind of an extremist. He would argue that, like, not only can you become straight, but, you, like, you must. You must become straight. Um, that he had sort of pulled some strings uh, to get onto the stage when we were going to be speaking to give his own presentation. So Ron and I talked about this, and we said, okay, well, we'll do our presentation, then we'll sit down, and he can do his presentation, and we'll encourage folks to listen to him as respectfully as they did to us. And so that's what we did. Ron was really gracious in what he said. And then this other guy gets up, and for like 25 minutes, just says some of the most vile things you've ever heard. Um, about half the students in the audience literally got up and walked out of the room. People were in tears. LGBT students were in tears because this guy was just saying, not, not just talking about theology, but like really awful, just insulting things about LGBT people. And during his talk, uh, he said quite clearly that I'm not a Christian. So after the... After his bit, they put all three of us on stage to do a Q&A like this. And the moderator asked if each of us had anything we wanted to say in response to what we'd heard from the other presentations. So I'm thinking, how in the world do I respond to this? I've just done this presentation on the importance of grace. And here's this guy who just said all this like really awful stuff that's hurt all these people in the audience who have now come back in and sat back down. 
And he said, I'm not a Christian. And um, so Ron speaks before me. And Ron, I don't really remember what he said because the whole time Ron was talking, I was thinking, what am I going to say? I have no idea. <laughs> but one of the nice things that Ron did was he said, I, I disagree with Justin, but I need you to know that he is my brother in Christ, and I have no doubt about that. And that's very, you know, that's a really important thing to understand, which I was so grateful to him that he was willing to extend me that grace and he, because he had a voice in the space that I didn't have. Um, when it came time for me, I basically tried to say something about um, empathy <laughs> and the fact that issues like this are hurt, like a lot of us are hurting in different ways. And it was clear to me that the other speaker had a lot of concern, a lot of pain around this issue. And that it's easy for us when somebody says something that hurts us to respond back by saying something hurtful in return, and then we just end up in this never-ending cycle. And I think it's important for us to try to understand each other and try to listen and, and, and hear that pain in each other's voices. And, you know, um, well, that, I got a standing ovation for saying that. And the next day, the big story on the campus was... Not anything Ron and I had said in our presentation, but the fact that we responded graciously to this guy who had said unkind things about us. Um, that said, I, <laughs> when people afterwards said, oh, you were so gracious, you were so gracious, I said, well, to be fair, I had just given a presentation on grace and I was sitting in front of a big audience. I might not have been so gracious otherwise. <laughs> But I do think there, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I do think there's something to be said for continuing to be gracious when people are not gracious to you and, and continuing to um, show that even forgiveness um, and, and demonstrate through your life who you are. Um, you can't, if someone isn't willing to listen to anything that you have to say because of something about you, I don't know of a way to make them listen, but there are other people who will listen, and there are other people who will see you respond in grace to the person who won't listen, and that will ultimately give them more reason to listen. And there are times that it's frustrating, and there are times that it's discouraging, and you may just want to give up. Um, I've had plenty of times that I thought to myself, why am I even doing this? Going to spaces full of people who aren't willing to listen to anything I have to say. Why am I even here? And there are times that I've done a presentation somewhere and just thought that just did not go well at all. And I go back home and I just, you know, I'm just despondent. But God keeps giving you new opportunities all the time. And um, I think... In the end, it's an opportunity to practice what you preach, to practice what it is to be a Christian. Yeah, his question was actually very similar to a question that I had wanted to ask, because you talked about team loyalty and how to redraw the team lines to include other people. And yeah. my question for you is actually, how do you redraw those lines when other people are drawing them preemptively and those lines are drawn when you are on the out? And your, your response, uh, it, it sounds like what you're saying is, when other people are drawing those lines and creating those teams and, and they're in the in team and you're on the out team, that it is this kind of a, a strategic dialogue, this extended compassion to them, is that you refuse to draw those same lines. You're actually going to draw lines that include the people that are even excluding you in their lines. Like You have, you have to create a way of thinking and a way of being that includes the very people that do not include you. I should have said that. That would have been a good answer. No, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, several questions. One is, you have the privilege of like being invited into spaces yeah. where you know that, that you're going to be entering into these conversations. So the question is, is, how does one 
like if you're not invited into those spaces, how do we begin to initiate the conversations in particular with those who are like who have different you know points of view? Uh, in addition, do do how do we organically have those happen interpersonally? Hmm. And do personally, do you spend a lot of time or energy, or how should one time spending time and energy having those conversations like online or or like a uh, like a social media type thing? Because that 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 seems like a hamster wheel, not even worth oh even boy. looking at. Um, Isn't it though? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the last one is: Have you ever had any kind of personal safety boundaries that you've had to address in having those particular conversations? Um, yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'll try to remember all those. Um, I've I've generally I've generally felt safe, like physically safe. Certainly not always emotionally safe. Um, but but I've generally felt physically safe places that I've been. There are a few times that I've been in parts of the country where um, I've thought to myself, is this a good idea? Um, but, yeah, thankfully it hasn't been too much of an issue. Um, I, di- I, I used to not get invited to these spaces, and nobody's ever asked me about that, and so I really like that you asked me that question. Um, I, so I, I talked about the surveys that we did on college campuses back in 2011, 2012. So that started because I was running this organization uh, that was at the time that was called the Gay Christian Network, uh, and I'm not there anymore, and they're not called that anymore, but um, I, was, I was running this organization, and it started off as just a community of LGBT Christians who were, well, initially just gay Christians, so that's the name, um, and then LGBT Christians, and then it grew into like LGBT and allied Christians, but it was like a thing that had grown with time. Um, and so I was really interested in having conversations with Christians and LGBT folks on college campuses and, and trying to see if we could start some dialogues. So we got a grant to go to 20 different schools, and um, we had this whole plan that I put together to go to these schools and do this dialogue. And the way we were going to do it was I would contact the LGBT student group on campus and say, will you sponsor me to come to your campus to do a presentation on dialogue on this stuff and will invite the Christian groups on campus. Because I don't think the Christian groups will invite me to come, but you LGBT folks may invite me to come and then we'll invite the Christian groups and say, we're inviting you to this dialogue. So we did that. Sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't. I found that if the invitation was extended in a way that the Christian groups felt like they were actually going to have the chance to participate in the dialogue, they would show up. If they thought that they were just going to be uh, lectured at, then they wouldn't show up. Um, because, go figure, people don't like to show up to be preached at. Um, and that works both ways. Um, what I didn't expect was we started doing some of these events and started getting a reputation for actually having respectful dialogues that like, made people feel safe. And then I started getting requests from Christian colleges going, yeah, we heard about this dialogue that you did on such and such a campus, and somebody sent us a video of it or told us about it or whatever, and we're really interested in something like that on our campus. And all of a sudden it was like, what? Like, you're a Christian college, right? Are you sure you know, like, what I do? Because you have really conservative views. Um, And so it took time. But I think even when you don't get invited, I think one of the things you can do is find folks who care about the issue and, and basically say, okay, we're going invite, to invite, we'll invite you to have this conversation with us. And they may not always show up, but even if a few people do, that's at least a conversation you're having with a few people. Um, I don't remember. Social media, yes. I think face-to-face conversation is always better. Uh, it, text is difficult because you can't read body, like body language or, or hear vocal cues or whatever. And people, um, people feel free to be a lot nastier in text than they are in real life. And, 
And then the more people you add, like when you start trying to have a conversation with somebody like on a Facebook page and you're going back and forth with comments, then other people pile on. And then you have the people who pile on who aren't, like who are on the other side. And then you have people even on your side who pile on in ways that aren't helpful. And then it just explodes. And so I generally try to take that stuff at least one-on-one, but I find it's, I'm much more successful in having conversations with folks one-on-one in private, uh, like face-to-face, than online. I, I hope I'm not imposing. I'd like to add to that, actually. I mean, um, the, the way our neurobiology actually works mm. is there are neurons in our brain that actually respond to all of that, which you said, like the physical, the emotional, how you tilt your head, how you furrow your brow, all those particular things. And, and online and in text and on Facebook, com- all of that is completely absent. So if somebody says something, their neurobiology is completely void of what that is actually doing to somebody else. But if I'm face-to-face with somebody and I say something vitriolic and mean, you know, um, I, can, I can actually feel and sense my neurons are actually reacting to how you're responding to what I'm saying. And that can actually have an influence for furthering actually more uh, you know, productive conversations and dialogue. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, it's, in my mind, it's just hands down. There's no, there's no comparison to having, which is part of the reason why we're doing this, is, is to have conversations um, that are face-to-face um, wh- where we can experience that rather than just blasting you know, your blog with all sorts of ideas and, and hoping that that's actually going to yeah. be as effective. So, yeah. Hi, Justin. Thanks for being here. Um, Thank you. So how, how does Matthew 18 come into <laughs> the strategic dialogue question? So... Um, or idea. So someone has said, uh, when someone has said something highly offensive, problematic, they demonstrated themselves to be just a toxic person, unsafe, Mm. um, but they're still a brother or sister in Christ that may or may not be a coworker who I (laughs) deal with regularly. And, um, and and I even though what when I was in the conversation with them and they res, they said what they said, I feel like I responded graciously, um, but it's eating at me and I need to go. I, I I just feel like I have to go address it, but I don't. I'm not confident in the strategic dialogue part. Mm. Uh, mostly, I don't know that I can be gracious. I think I already was gracious and I'm done being gracious. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you, when you, but I keep thinking Matthew 18, right? Like how do I, do, do you understand? Does that make sense? The question? Um, or sorry, the, uh, so go to somebody when they're they directly offended. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. I, you know, I think, um, it's always, for me, like, it, it's, always, it's always a balancing act because in real life... Could you refer athletes that everybody knows um, Right, so what's the, what's the verse on that? Cause I, uh, Matthew 18 is like, if a brother or sister offends you, you go directly to them, and then, um, then if they don't receive it, then, um, then you bring another person with you uh, to point out what that person has done, and if they still don't receive it, then you bring the church to them and point it out, and then if they don't receive it, then and, um, it doesn't say excommunicate, but that's my translation. <laughs> well, specifically, treat them as an outsider, right? If, if you've taken all the steps to take a brother and then to take the church, the ecclesia, it's only one of two times Jesus actually uses the word church is in this context, um, and, and they're not willing to listen and reconcile, and, and they've offended you, they've sinned against you, then you have to treat them like an outsider or treat them like a pagan, um, which can sound harsh, but how are Christians supposed to treat outsiders, right? So, yeah. so there, there's a lot of interpretation with that, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think in, in theory, I, I'm a big believer in as much as possible, listen before you speak, as much as possible, seek to understand before being understood. Um, The reality is real-life situations can be 
messy and complicated. I mean, and you may have a situation where, for instance, the person doesn't realize that they've done anything wrong. And for them, there isn't even an issue to discuss until you explain to them where you're coming from. And, you know, and it can be very, very difficult to be gracious. Um, I, I think we're called to be gracious, but it can be very difficult to be gracious when, particularly when you feel like someone, um, A, has all the power in the situation, and B, doesn't seem to care um, about your feelings, about how you've been hurt, about, you know, whatever. Um, and I, I wish I could say that, you know, I had like a way that I always do it, that it always, you know, like, well, I just say this thing and then it always, I feel great. And I always, you know, I've, I mean, I've lost my temper and fussed people out before. And afterwards, I always feel bad that I have because it, like, it never gets me what I want. Um, but it's, I, I find it difficult, you know, sitting here because I don't know your situation and you do. And so I, I find it difficult to sort of say, well, just such and such. And it may be something that doesn't even apply to, you know, what you're experiencing. Um, but I think when I've been in those kinds of situations, um, I, I try as much as I can to find a way and sort of rehearse in my head a way to um, express to the other person what I'm feeling in a way that doesn't accuse them of intentionally trying to make me feel what I'm feeling, that acknowledges that I'm sure that, even if I'm not sure, that I'm sure that they didn't uh, mean how it came across, and I'm sure that they had great intentions, and I am sure that they see it differently, and here's how I'm feeling. And I uh, was in a situation recently where I had to do this, where, like, I really think they probably meant it, but I, like, you know, sort of rehearsed over and over before I talked to this person, like, okay, okay, hey, I know you didn't mean this to come across this way and this is, but this is how I'm feeling right now. And then when the person didn't immediately go, um, Oh no, I'm so sorry. The way that I hope they would, I really wanted to be like, do you know how gracious I'm being to you right now? <laughs> Forget you. I, but I, I do think, I do think there's a time and a place though to say, um, if you've really, if you've really made the effort and 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 you've done everything that you can do to try to have reconciliation, and they're just not willing to to work for reconciliation at all, um, there are times that you just have to say, "This is, um, you know, leaving this with God and and find the best way to you know take care of yourself." I think sometimes we're too quick to get to that option, but I do think it is sometimes what what you have to do. I, I, this is. This is a really neat question. What advice do you have for someone who, as a gay Christian, feels called to be part of a non-affirming church community to bridge the gap? Yeah. Um, I've done that. Um, <laughs> um, the advice that I have for them is, first of all, I think, I think that's awesome for people who are called to do that. Um, and I don't think everyone is called to do it. And so people often ask me, should I be part of a non-affirming community or an affirming community? And I, and I say, I can't tell you that. You, that's, you have to go where God's called you. Um, but the advice I have is make sure that you have, um, make sure that you have a spiritual support group. Because the mistake I've often made is I spend all of my time trying to bridge gaps with people until I'm just empty. And then I have nobody to, you know, hold my arms up. Um, yeah. And I've done that way too many times. And I think that can come from inattentiveness or it can come from arrogance, thinking that you're going to save the world by yourself. Um, I'm, of course way too good of a Christian to ever be arrogant, so... Um, but I, 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 I think you've got to make sure that you've got a support network that you're being spiritually fed, and it's hard to get that in a church that doesn't affirm you, and so you may have to balance that with making sure you're getting spiritual nourishment elsewhere and that you've got a Christian support group. 
Well, you could you could attend multiple churches. You could be a you part, can. right? And that's right. Yeah, we have a like, lot of people doing that. Yeah, right? different churches offer offer different things. They have different cultures. They have different ways in which they're doing things, and you can feel called to that um, while recognizing that may not be home, quote yeah. unquote, right? For you, so yeah. Hi. So my question is, is how are you able to empathically listen if the core of your identity is being either covertly or overtly being attacked? Because I assume now that your identity is much more well-formed, but I'm kind of curious what it looked like when it was like young Justin growing up. <laughs> like, how were you in your response when someone's like viscerally coming at you and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to love them in a Jesus way, but I don't. I'd rather take a fist right now. Like, yeah. what did that actually look like? And then... Can you speak to if you went back to some of those people and decided, I'm going to go and make a repair, or did you just say, you know what, I'm not, and it's okay? Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting when you say that, I think to myself, it may be part of what what you sort of got at in one of your first questions when you asked me about uh, the sort of, I think, some of the, the language that I was using in terms of, you know, strategic dialogue and not not talking as much about empathy uh, directly as such, but, but kind of the, the way I talk about it as like a, you know, like a strategy kind of thing. Um, I, part of that may also be the fact that when I was first going through this stuff and I was really hurting and struggling to even accept myself as gay and then I'm in a room with people who are telling me that I'm not gay or that it's a sin to be gay and that, you know, that I, you know, I'm not really a Christian and all this stuff. Um, part of what I leaned on besides just, you know, lots of like prayer and, you know, this is what I think I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Part of what I leaned on was, okay, what's like strategic? Like what's actually going to change this? Um, and sometimes I had to kind of put that like emotional armor on and be less vulnerable. I actually think vulnerability in these conversations is usually a good thing, but there are times that I've had to go into a conversation where I'm like, I, I, I'm not able to be vulnerable right now because this is such a like difficult conversation for me. And so I'm just going to be as strategic as I can and just be very logical about it. And logically, I know that I need to be in this room for as long as I can handle being in this room. Um, and then I need to leave. And there are times that I've absolutely just walked away from conversations. Um, I have, yeah. And there are times that I've used the pain, honestly, um, and to actually be vulnerable when I felt able to do it um, as an asset. I mean, there are times that I've let people see me cry because I was like, you know what? They need to know how much I'm hurt by what they're saying. Um, and it may not change anything, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to hold it back. Um, but I think you have to, you have to care for yourself too. And you have to, even Jesus got away from the crowds to spend time alone, to pray. Um, I think you're the best judge of when a situation is just like not going to be healthy for you and when it's something that you can take on. And sometimes there may be a situation that you want to take on and you're just not there emotionally. And that's, that's okay. I have a, just a few last questions and we'll make sure you, we get your question. I, we're in a series entitled, why are you a Christian? Yeah. And I want to ask you that question. Um, why, why are you a Christian? And the, the context of that is Given everything, this whole journey that you've been on, yeah. go from the very beginning to now, why are you still a Christian? And I, I've even heard you uh, say that you're still an evangelical. Yeah, that scary word. <laughs> so, and you, you obviously don't have to claim that, but... Uh, yeah, I, I wrestle with that word sometimes. And, um, yeah. So, so why, are you, yeah, why are you a Christian? Um, I, I've actually written a blog post on this. Uh, it's on my website. Um, and uh, I think it's called Sick of Christianity. Um, and the short answer is Jesus. I'm drawn to the person of Jesus. And, and, I, and, and we've talked about this a little. I find it interesting that many of the Christians who I 
find it difficult to be around today, who would make it difficult for me to, to claim the same faith as them because of the way they've treated me or other people I care about. Um, resemble, when you read the Gospels, resemble the Pharisees more than they resemble Jesus. And so what I think is really interesting is Jesus, here he is, um, you know, a Jewish man in, in, in the context of these other Jewish leaders um, who in their desire to get it all right and be devout and, and live out the scriptures and, and serve God have gotten so legalistic that they've missed the whole point. And Jesus is like, no, you're, you're missing the point. You know, it's, it's about God's love for people, and here's how you live it out, and don't let your child be in a well overnight on the Sabbath, and of course I'm going to heal this guy's hand even though it's the Sabbath because it's, it's the loving thing to do, and, you know, and, and all of this stuff. And, I, and, it, and, he, and he says of the Pharisees, uh, they tie up heavy burdens and put them on people's shoulders, and they themselves won't even lift a finger to move them. And I think to myself, that sounds a lot like the church at its worst mm. right now. And so um, the patterns repeat, and the, the things that Jesus criticized the Pharisees for, we see come back in the church today as we keep, you know, kind of gravitating back to legalism. Mm. Um, and Jesus, though, stands for everything that, that I want to be. Um, and so when I read the Gospels and I see Jesus versus the Pharisees and I go, Jesus in this story is the one I want to be. And Jesus gets it right on so many issues and is, you know, j just so compelling. And then, I, and then I dig into, so who is this Jesus? And what is it that makes him so special? That's for me, when I had to tear everything else in my faith apart because I, everything had been taught to me by my church that also taught me that it was a choice to be gay, and I knew that had not turned out to be true. And I just sort of tear it all apart. It all, that was Jesus at the center of it all, and I, was, and I built it back up from there. So that's why. That's awesome. So you get the last question, then we'll, we'll close. Make it a good one. I will. Pressure's on. I will. <laughs> <clears throat> so as a child of God who was black and who was gay, the church has not been a place for me. The church has not historically been a place for my people. The church is not a place for gay people right now. Um, there are many reasons for that. Um, I do see though in the Bible that there's a lot of redemption in the gospels. There's a lot of restoration. Um, so, you know, you do see that there is something special, right? That's drawing us all here. Um, my question is, what is your vision for the church as a whole at large um, for the future? And um, if you dare want to go into this, what are some of the barriers to getting there? Oh, boy. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for letting me end with an easy question. You do realize the future of the church is now sitting on your shoulders. Like how you answer this. I, yeah, yeah. Thank goodness I'm not arrogant. Um, well, the vision part is, I think, is easy. Um, I, I, I want to see the church be like Jesus. And for me, that means... What if... What people said about Christians was, you know, I don't always agree with those folks on everything. I don't believe everything they believe. I don't understand why they do some of the things they do, spend their money the way they spend it, focus on the things they focus on. But man, if those aren't the most loving, gracious people I've ever met, I mean, you, you, could, you could just about slap them in the face and they would, you know, smile and say, do you need another one to take out your anger, you know? I mean, that's who Jesus calls us to be. I mean, literally, right? And, uh, and, and there are times I see that 
in the church. I don't want to paint too bleak a picture because I do see churches that I think are, are doing it right. Um, as I said, I'm very impressed with this church, and no church is, is perfect. So any church, you're, you know, people are going to say, well, I know a time we dropped the ball, or I know this thing that needs to be, you know, and, and, and every pastor knows that. But, but I see glimmers. I see it happen. But I also see, as, as I think we all do, times that we've really, you know, really missed it. But I think if we could get back there, if we could be the folks who just live out God's love, who truly live every day with the knowledge that we have been forgiven of so much, it's that, that parable that's like my favorite parable, one of my, one of my favorite parables that I go back to over and over, um, of the unmerciful servant. So the king has a servant who owes this money, and the king forgives the servant's gigantic debt. And then the servant goes out and tries to hold another servant accountable for the tiny debt that he owes him. And the king is like, what are you doing? I just forgave you this huge debt, and now you're trying to hold this guy accountable? And he throws him in debtor's prison. Um, it's the positive story of that, the flip of that is... If we actually lived every day like, I've been forgiven of, I have this gigantic debt, and I've been forgiven of it. And you go out into the world with that much joy and gratitude. So then somebody else says to you, I'm so sorry I haven't paid you back for this thing. I know I screwed up. I, I know I promised it to you. That you just are like, brother, sister, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Life's too short, you know? If we were that way, not about money, but about just everything, about all of the, the wrongs people have done to us and all of, you know, like if that's who we were known for being so that when someone walked in the door of the church, they knew that no matter what's going on in their life, no matter how bad of a person they are, no matter how much they stink, no matter like what their issues are, that they could just come in and just be themselves and know that they would be loved and welcomed here. That would be amazing. And I think what keeps us from getting there is that we're so afraid all the time that I think some of it is that we're afraid that if we're too gracious that we'll, we'll get the doctrine wrong. And so we, get, we increasingly focus on making sure that we've got all of the doctrines right and making sure that you know exactly which doctrines you're supposed to, you know, and so that I know that you know that, you know. And, and it's not that the doctrine is unimportant. I think the doctrine's important, but I think the doctrine and all of it is in service of this message that God so loved the world. And we get so focused on the doctrine piece and the making sure that you, you're right about everything and you're not doing something you shouldn't be doing that, you know, we miss the love piece that we turn into the Pharisees. And the other thing I think we m mess up is our own selfishness gets involved and we think, well, I am living this good life and doing all these things that I'm supposed to be doing. If they're not, and they're getting just as much grace, then that's not okay. So I need to make sure to hold them accountable. And it's another one of Jesus's parables where he's like, you know, the, the, the people who worked all day get paid the same amount as the folks who showed up at the end. And the people who worked all day are like, well, I had to do all this work for the same amount. Um, and we do that. And we're like, no, you know, I've worked so hard to be such a good person and this person's not working as hard. And, so, you know, we judge each other and we talk behind each other's backs and, we, and, you know, and our own humanness comes out. And I think what we just have to do continually is keep putting our sights on, on Christ and keep figuring out, you know, re remembering that we're sinful and that we've been forgiven of this great debt. And so every single day, be less concerned with what everybody else is doing wrong and more concerned with how do I fix what I'm doing wrong? Um, let God deal with those people and, and let me be who God's called me to be and show that love. And if we could do that as a community and let that, what, let that be what we're known for, I think that would change the world. That's awesome. That was a really beautiful question and a really beautiful answer. And on that, we will close our official time. Um,
for those of you who came to Spark to, because Justin was here, I want to extend to you once again my gratitude. Um, your presence is a blessing to us, and we're so thankful that you've come. Um, Justin, your new ministry, Nuance Ministries, um, is I wish you all the very best. I pray that your tribe increases and that the work that you do is just um, not only blessed by God in influence, but that blesses God in his kingdom and his work. Um, and ultimately, I, I do, I really, since, I mean, the more and more I listen to you, I'm like, you, you embody this wisdom and this compassion from this place that is just so beautiful and compelling and inspiring that, I, yeah, it is a deep prayer of mine that your tribe would totally increase and that you would, God would grant you more and more influence. Um, thank you. is very mutual. So. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming all the way out here. And I know you live in Orlando, but if you ever want to move, you, you have a home, okay? All right. All right. <laughs> so, I know we don't have Disney World, but well, um, we've you know, got Google. I am single. <laughs> I am single. So maybe if you find me a really great guy out here. Then... Okay, well, well we... I don't know if that's allowed, but, you know. <laughs> and on that note, everybody, let's give Justin a big round of applause. Thanks. <laughs>